people have grown very cynical um, and, and disillusioned, and many have kind of run up into the hills. They've fled the political town square, if you will, out of desperation. Um, my message to them is come back. We need you. We need to build back our democracy. We can do it. We have what it takes. Um, and this moment in our political history, I think, is absolutely critical. Stay tuned to hear more from Congressman John Sarbanes on his efforts to preserve democratic institutions and to leave a legacy of a stronger republic. Hello, and welcome to Public Interest Podcast with your host, Jordan Cooper, where we have been interviewing politicians, activists, advocates, and others since 2016 with the intention of ennobling public service creating a platform for positive civil discourse, and facilitating dialogue with difference. This show is the antidote for those who are tired of hearing about what's going wrong with the world. We showcase people just like you who are working to leave the world better than they found it. And that's good news. And now a word from former President John F. Kennedy with his views on public service. Ask not what your country can do for you. Ask what you can do for your country. I'll remind you that this show is made possible by viewers like you. If you appreciate what we're doing here at Public Interest Podcast and enjoy this episode, please contribute $1 at publicinterestpodcast.com. Thanks for listening and enjoy the show. We're here today with Congressman John Sarbanes uh, from Maryland's 3rd Congressional District. Uh, Congressman Sarbanes is an attorney, formerly with Venable LLP, uh, and a chair of the Democracy Reform Task Force. John, thank you so much for joining us today. How are you doing? Great. Great to be with you. Great. So the first question I'd like to ask you is, what are you currently doing or what have you ever done to advance the public interest and why? Oh my goodness. Well, I, I like to think that for many, many years I've been working to advance the public interest even before I got into politics because I was serving on a lot of boards of nonprofits in Maryland. I'm particularly proud of my service with the Public Justice Center in Baltimore, which does systemic change litigation and really tries to impact the lives of broad numbers of people uh, in the Baltimore area. So I was on the president of that organization, the board at one point, and served on the board for many, many years. In part, it was my interest in nonprofit work and public interest work that got me focused on the potential opportunity to step into the public space uh, in elected office. And then when that opportunity presented itself, I grabbed hold of it obviously. Um, I also spent seven years before entering politics and while an attorney at Venable uh, working with the state superintendent of schools on education matters in a, in a kind of policy position. It was a very unusual arrangement. I was part-time at Venable huh. managing their health care group and simultaneously working 20 hours a week for Nancy Grasmick, who at that time was the superintendent of schools for the state of Maryland working on Baltimore City and all of the challenges facing the city school system. So I brought this kind of nonprofit hat, uh, public sector hat, and then private sector hat into public office when I began serving back in 2007. Since then, my big focus, if you want to talk about things that I hope are benefiting the, the public interest, have been health care reform. And I came with that background having served as chair of the healthcare practice at Venable. Um, volunteerism, so I'm a big booster of AmeriCorps. Worked very hard to keep that program strong over the last few years. Um, you know, 
money and politics is my mission and addressing the undue influence that money has in politics. And I'm now chairing the Democracy Reform Task Force and we are hoping, we can talk about this more for sure, we're hoping to roll out in the first days of the next Congress, HR1, a broad democracy reform package that will be a declaration back to the American people that Democrats get it, that we want to fix our democracy when it comes to voting, when it comes to ethics, and when it comes to campaign finance reform. So we're working on that now, um, full speed. Now, one of your hallmark uh, pieces of legislation is the Government by the People Act. Would you tell me a little bit about what that act is, and more importantly, why you found uh, that you, though you've been able to pass other pieces of legislation like the No Child Left Inside Act, yeah. while your top legislative priority, the Government by the People Act, has faced such resistance and hasn't passed it along. So I would say in the Democratic caucus, it's anything but something that's been resisted. We have over 170 members of Congress that are co-sponsors of that bill. Mm-hmm. But it's not a piece of legislation that you're going to get passed in a Republican Congress because it's transformational. It would create a completely new way of funding campaigns, not unlike, frankly, the system that Montgomery County put in place uh, recently and just went through the first election countywide. For our listeners who aren't familiar with Montgomery County, Congressman Sarbanes is referring to a public campaign finance uh, law that went into effect in a 2018 electoral cycle. Yeah. And basically the concept is you take small donations, you match them with public dollars, and candidates can step forward and run being powered by everyday Americans mm-hmm. instead of having to go hat in hand to you know the big check writers and the PACs and, and the inside crowd and the lobbyists, which I think would be a huge positive change for how our politics operates in this country. And so the Government by the People Act, which you referred to, which would create a small donor matching system for congressional campaigns. We have nothing like that right now. Mm-hmm. It would create that. That is a critical component of this broad democracy reform package that Democrats intend to bring to, to the floor of the House as quickly as we can in the next session. Now, how does the US campaign fit into this whole yeah. picture? So the US campaign, I started about, I guess, three or four years ago. The idea was to begin assembling advocacy and information around the importance of public financing and democracy reform nationally. And we wanted to build an outward-facing platform that would reach people who are interested in this topic. It was also a good way to assemble some resources so we could help candidates running nationally Mm -hmm. for Congress who care about reform. We were able to do that in this last election cycle. Functioning like a PAC, kind of? It's functioning essentially like a leadership fund, yeah, Mm -hmm. leadership PAC that provides that kind of support. We were able to help, I would say, maybe 30 to 40 of the candidates who've just arrived here, Hmm. and they're very good on the reform issue. I mean, they frankly were leading with that from day one because they could feel it in the electorate. So they're freshman members of Congress now who have received funds from your leadership Yes, and they, and they benefited basically because we are looking for people who are ready to change this system, okay? Ready to put in place things like the Government by the People Act, ready to do voting reform, ready to do ethics reform, Mm -hmm. and 
they were making that a key part of their campaign argument to the electorate. And obviously they were successful along how, with other issues. How receptive would you say the average American is to these sorts of good governance issues? Increasingly, I think they're starved for it. If you look at the polling data, uh, particularly independence, um, corruption is the number one issue. They look at Washington, they, they paint, unfortunately, but understandably, they paint Democrats and Republicans with a broad brush. They feel like if you're serving in Washington, you know, the fix is in and you're not paying attention to the average person. I think they're desperate for a kind of wholesale change in the culture up here where... Now, Donald Trump was wholesale change, wasn't he? was. So Trump traded on a lot of the sentiment we're talking about right now. People fed up, angry, frustrated with Washington, and he promised to drain the swamp. He was going to come up here and shake things up and all the rest of it and do it on behalf of the people. Mm -hmm. He did the exact opposite. He made the, the swamp deeper. He's <laughs> turned away from the people. He's, he's pulled more power to himself and his family mm -hmm. and to his buddies, let's say. And he's not, I think, focusing a lot of time on the people. He came with this idea that we should kind of tear Washington down. What I like about the new class that's coming on the Democratic side is they're not here to, to destroy. Mm -hmm. They're here to repair. They're here to clean this up, make it work again. Americans actually, I give them credit, as, as angry and disillusioned they become with some of the leadership they see mm -hmm. in government, they still believe government can be a force for good in their lives. They want that. And if we can clean things up so they start having more trust in how we run the government, mm -hmm. then we can go get some of these things done that they want to see on the economy, on health care, on the environment. So I'm sure you've had personal interactions with many of the 534 other members of the U.S. Congress. How do you explain a discrepancy between what the, Ameri the low, the low uh, approval ratings of Congress around the nation and is there a discrepancy between, between those low approval ratings uh, and the individuals you see as your colleagues in the Congress? I think that um, most people who are serving here are here for the right reasons. They want to do the right Even thing. Even people who disagree with you? Sure. I think, I think most people who come to Washington come here wanting to serve. Now, there's a, there's a group of people among this kind of Tea Party crowd that got here in the last few years who are very dedicated to the idea of kind of tearing government down. They don't believe in government. And why do they want to tear it down as part of government? Because they think it gets in the way. They just don't like the idea of government being in their lives, even though if you parsed it out, you'd find that many of them have benefited from the opportunities that government acting on behalf of the people have created. But they have an ideology that says government is the problem mm -hmm. and we need to push it out of the way. I think most Americans believe that government can actually serve their interests well as long as the leadership in government is something that is accountable to the people. Where you get in trouble is when the people that get elected and come here and are supposed to represent the broad public, they get captured by special interests, insiders, lobbyists, PACs, and they end up doing their bidding 
instead of doing what the, the broad public wants to see. So the topic of accountability is huge in terms of your legacy, and not only your legacy, but your father's legacy. For our listeners who don't know, your father is Paul Sarbanes, a former United States senator who was present in, present in your swearing-in ceremony. On this topic of accountability, which so much defines your government by the people yeah. act, I'd also like to mention the Sarbanes-Oxley Act, which your father is responsible for in the wake of the uh, Enron and WorldCom right. scandals. Uh, and that act was uh, about creating corporate transparency and accountability. Um, uh, interestingly, it was attacked subsequently by Justice Kavanaugh and subsequent uh, Supreme Court decisions. My question for you is to what extent you believe any of your father's legacy of public service and also his interest in transparency and accountability has informed your interest in introducing accountability and transparency through your Government by the People Act? Well, that's a great question and one that I appreciate. I think for sure um, his example of accountability in government and ethics is something that I took to heart from an early age. Um, before I had any idea of going into public service myself, um, that ethical standard was something that I aspired to. So um, it's natural, I think, for me in the role that I play now to want to insist on accountability and transparency and integrity with respect to these democratic institutions. So it's informed certainly partly by his legacy, but just as much so by interacting with people out there every day who just simply want the people they send to Washington um, to be looking out for them not for themselves, not for some special interest, but looking out for them, and, and feel so powerless when they look at a system that seems to be owned by big money and special interests. And we owe it to our democracy, but to every citizen in our democracy, to do everything we can to strengthen these institutions. And that's why I'm so um, committed to this. It's not gonna be easy because people have grown very cynical um, and, and disillusioned, and many have kind of run up into the hills. They've fled the political town square, if you will, out of desperation. Um, my message to them is come back. We need you. We need to build back our democracy. We can do it. We have what it takes. Um, and this moment in our political history, I think, is absolutely critical for that to happen, and that's why we're trying to lead this effort right now. So on the topic of following in your father's footsteps... Um, some have said that the 3rd Congressional District that you represent, which goes across the entire state of Maryland from Baltimore City all the way over to Montgomery County, was gerrymandered by leadership in the House and Senate in Maryland. So that would be Mike Bush and Mike Miller, as well as uh, Governor O'Malley, such with the idea that perhaps you would win that seat and be prepared for statewide office to literally follow or to figuratively follow in your father's footsteps as a statewide elected official, be it governor or United States senator. Now, interestingly, you have signed on to the Redistricting Reform Act to end gerrymandering. So I'd like to ask you, how would that act um, affect your own third congressional district? Uh, first of all, it is being uh, the third district has been challenged in federal court as unconstitutional. What are your thoughts on gerrymandering, uh, and and how does that affect the people's trust in their democracy? I think it's very fair for people to be angry and resentful of the way districts are drawn right now in this country. I, as you say, I am a co-sponsor of the Redistricting Reform Act, 
that particular bill would require every state in the country to set up independent redistricting commissions to draw district lines. Some states have that already. California is an example. Um, I think if you're going to do that, you do want to apply it nationally because if you just do it on a state-by-state basis, you end up with the other states being even more politicized as a result. So it's got to be one of these things where you require it across the country. That's what our bill does. How likely is it to pass in Congress? Well, we're going to pass it in the House. And then I think it's, it's got enough resonance with people across the political spectrum that if we make a, a strong declaration on that, I think it creates more pressure on some Republicans to get on to that kind of reform. Um, and they'll start feeling the heat back in their own districts. In fact, I think some of them are, did feel that heat in this last election because some of our Democratic candidates were running hard on that issue. Um, so it's an important reform, and it's part of, it happens to be a part of this reform package that I've been talking about, along with all these other things that we want to do that I put under the heading of respecting the American voter. Yeah. Maryland now has, for a second term, Republican Governor Larry Hogan, who has articulated his support for a very similar proposal of a nonpartisan redistricting commission. This is something that Democratic leadership in the Maryland House of Delegates and Maryland State Senate has traditionally opposed, even though the districts were previously drawn by former Governor Martin O'Malley, who has since come out against the gerrymandering process. Would you be in support of Larry Hogan's initiative to create a nonpartisan redistricting commission, and would you encourage members of the House and Senate to similarly support such a commission? I would support that in the context of a national solution like the one I described. But so I'm not unilaterally. Not unilaterally, because that doesn't make any sense. If you look, at, look across the country, the places where the most egregious gerrymandering have occurred— mm-hmm places like North Carolina, places like Pennsylvania before they fixed it there with a court decision, places like Ohio, etc. Um, these are places where the gerrymandering has gone in favor of the Republicans in an extreme way. Mm-hmm. I mean, you're talking about places that are, some of them arguably Democratic states, but yet when you look at the representation in Congress, it's totally imbalanced in favor of the Republicans because of the way they did gerrymandering. So if we're going to go fix it in a Democratic state, there needs to be some assurance that it's also getting fixed in the Republican states. Well, and so- I don't see them stepping up to unilaterally do that. So that's why you need a solution that says, look, we're going to set the standard nationally. Mm-hmm. Congress is going to step in and say that we insist that every state need a certain standard when it comes to how lines are drawn, Mm -hmm. and one that responds to the justifiable resentment on the part of a lot of voters when it comes to how districts are drawn in this country. I get that. That's fair. So let's solve the problem. We've got a proposal to do that. If we can pass our legislation in the House with a strong vote, I think it starts to put pressure on Republicans to step up and say, okay, we're for that kind of good government too, and we'll support these kinds of reforms. So I'd like to ask you how you would make the case to a Republican United States senator that he ought to or she ought to support the uh, Redistricting Reform Act, considering with the knowledge that if they do that, 
they will likely, well, they've already lost the House, right? This doesn't affect the U.S. Senate because the lines for the Senate are the actual state boundaries. But, and they've already lost the House, but they would lose more Republican seats, right? If there was no gerrymandering, the Democratic Party would benefit nationally, correct? Correct. So how do you make the case to someone to support this around a nation when his party would lose when simultaneously, if you were to support it just in Maryland alone, the Democratic Party would lose a seat? So my answer is I don't have to make the case. The people have to make the case. The people are where the political pressure comes from. So if the public wants to see this kind of reform on how districts are drawn, and I think they do care about this issue, they should start leaning on the lawmakers here in Washington have the ability to change that, whether they're senators or, or House members. And, I mean, senators care, Republican senators presumably care about whether the House is in Republican hands or not. You can say, well, if they support gerrymandering, that's going to hurt them nationally in terms of the way the lines are drawn. But you could also say if they don't support it, it's going to hurt them politically because on an issue that the public cares about, they're going to be on the wrong side of that. So I think it's, it's, it's up to the public to do what they've been doing, mm-hmm. which is saying to us, we don't like this. We want to see change. Lean on Republican members of Congress in swing districts across the country, mm-hmm. make them understand this is an important issue, along with some of the other ones that we're talking about. Maybe you get them to change their mind on this and do the right thing. So on the topic of this is a really crucial, um, I guess, tension, uh, both in your career and facing the entire United States, the tension between doing the right thing and remaining in power. How do you strike that balance? How do you, un- how do you figure out as a congressman you know, this is the right thing, but it's going to hurt me or my party politically versus doing what's expedient. And this touches immediately, directly back to government by the people, right? Yeah. If I, for instance, you don't accept corporate PAC money, it would be a lot easier for you. I don't accept any PAC money. Any PAC money. Period. And, and, it, and for our listeners who don't know, PAC is an acronym, Political Action Committee. It would be easier for you to raise more money more quickly if you did accept that money, but you don't because you don't think it's the right thing to accept that money. How do you strike a balance, uh, and what sort of message are you sending by refusing to accept any PAC money? How do you strike a balance between the tension of doing the right thing and doing what's politically expedient for you? Well, you hope that you're always trying to do the right thing. I mean, even on the, on the gerrymandering thing, if, if we have a national solution on how you draw lines. It depends on independent redistricting commissions. Maryland is a state which would probably end up losing some Democratic seats. Mm-hmm. Well, I support a national solution. So I, I think that I'm, I'm being very consistent there. I, I, I support a national solution versus this state-by-state approach. You can quibble over that. But the solution I want to see is one that in a state like Maryland would result in you know probably some Democratic seats being lost. Um, in terms of the PAC money, I just made a decision eight years ago. I didn't want to take any PAC money. I wanted to see if we could survive in American politics and do that. Um, I'm proud of that, but um, I'm no saint because, you know, I still take get a lot of money from people that can write you know, bigger checks than smaller checks. I want to move away from that. That's why I want to build a, a system for the national level that's based on small donors, mm-hmm. right? Because I want to I get to that place, what I call the renewable energy of campaign finance reform. Mm-hmm. And I'd like to make that possible for all my colleagues and candidates running to also step into that 
space. Making that journey is not easy, but we have to start doing it now. And frankly, a lot of these candidates who pledged not to take corporate PAC money, amen to that. I applaud that. I've done it myself. But that's a lot of money to give up. If we don't build a replacement system for win. those people, either they're going to have to slide back on that pledge or they're not going to have the resources they need to be competitive. So we can't ask people to jump off of one ice float and try to get onto the next one until we build that. That's why it's so important now to get this small donor leverage system of public financing in place so the people are in charge and the candidates can run competitive campaigns by turning to the people. As we approach the end of this podcast episode, a final parting uh, series of questions, I'd like to ask you uh, to speak to the apathetic American voter about admittedly a, a, not a sexy issue, right? This isn't abortion. It's not gay marriage. It's not gun rights. It's not plastered all over the headlines. We're talking about non-districting, re, non-partisan redistricting reform commissions. We're talking about campaign financing for how politicians raise money. How does that affect me and my kids yeah. and my little neighborhood? Could you speak to this apathetic voter about how um, our democratic institutions are under attack, why they need to care about that, why good governance should matter to them, why they need to get involved, and in what, what your motivations have been and what you hope your legacy would be. I always put this in terms of power. My message to, to people out there is do you, do you want your power or not? You can have it. You can have your power back in your own democracy. A lot of people feel like they've been left out, locked out of the democracy. They got their nose kind of pressed up against the glass looking in on a system that's run by PACs, big donors, special interests, lobbyists, and it drives them crazy. But it doesn't have to be that way. They can reclaim their power in this system. And it's not that complicated. You do it by insisting on, on it being easy, not hard to vote in America. We shouldn't have to run an obstacle course every time we want to get to the ballot box. So let's go do that. Let's pass those reforms. That gives you, the citizen, the power you should have as a voter. Secondly, you should insist that when people come to Washington to represent you, they behave. That's pretty simple and straightforward. Insist on that. Let's put guidelines in place that govern ethics and accountability and transparency. We can do that. We know what the solutions are. That's how you have respect from the people you elect. And finally, what people are saying to us is when you get to Washington, don't get tangled up in the money. And there are solutions to that too. Every single one of those reforms, which may seem dry when you're kind of parsing through the legislation, if you step back from them, they're about power. And people get angry when they feel powerless. They reach for drastic solutions when they feel powerless. But there are constructive, positive things you can do to regain your power in your own democracy. And that's everything that we're putting forward. And I think that's incredibly exciting for people, the idea that they can have power again in their own democracy. This country was founded, and our democracy was founded on the idea of the citizen being the one where power resides. We've gotten away from that. We can get back to it, but we can only get there if those citizens are ready to step up and participate as partners in that effort, and that's what we're asking them to do. I think they started doing it with this election. Look at the group of people that just showed up, class of 2018, from Oklahoma, from South Carolina, from Georgia, from, from Utah. Um, that, that class on the Democratic side looks like America. 
That is a message from America, saying this is who we are. This reform package that we want to put forward as H.R. 1 is them saying this is who we are and this is what we stand for. And I think that combination of the people that are coming to serve and the principles that they stand for, that can be pretty exciting for the, for the average citizen out there. And this has been Congressman John Sarbanes, who speaks about returning power to the people, the power of the, of the citizenry to determine a direction of their own democracy through uh, reforms to the democratic institutions by uh, making their voice heard over the clamoring of special interests, lobbyists, and large corporate uh, uh, political action committee funds. Uh, so John ultimately uh, is looking to create a legacy uh, through his public service of a more fair and equitable democracy. John, I'd like to thank you so much for joining us today. Thanks. It's been great. This has been another episode of Public Interest Podcast with your host, Jordan Cooper, where we interview politicians, activists, advocates, and others who seek to improve the state of the world. I'll remind you to subscribe on publicinterestpodcast.com, iTunes, or your favorite podcast listening platform. And please join the conversation by calling 240-630-0380 or emailing engage at publicinterestpodcast.com. Thanks for listening.